0: the following recording is a presentation of the Brian baptist church of Roner park california and of pastor val mark smith we are an independent baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith we welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Roner park area now if you would open your bibles once again to paul's epistle to the ephesians chapter six i'd like to read These verses, verses 10 through 20, that encompass part of the verses that we'll use for the sermon today. And uh, as I have done at other times, we want to contextualize what uh, we're going to preach on. So if you look at this passage, Ephesians chapter six, beginning in verse number 10, we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Verse number 10, Ephesians six. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, That therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But now I'd like to call your attention to three verses that we'll use as our text this morning. And I suppose these verses have never been more real to us than they are in these present troubling days. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In these past few months, and it's been a strange time in our church life. During these past few weeks, I've tried to preach subjects that I hope will encourage you and help you to stand in these times of trouble. This is an unprecedented time for American Christians, and I do believe there is much discouragement and even frustration that we don't know what to do. I've spoken to some of you that are stressed. You wonder, what is God doing And if ever again, that we'll see the good, easier church life that we've known. I don't know the answer to the question, but I do know that our freedom in our church life in America has never been challenged as it is now. But at the same time, our lives as Christians in America is not the usual life for Christians in any other part of the world at any time. And because of this, I know that God is not very much concerned about how easy the Christian life is. Now, I've made that clear. I hope in many previous sermons that the Bible teaches that Christians are made for trouble. Jesus said that we are to expect it. Paul said that we are designed for it. Troubles and trials are given to increase our patience and to build our faith. And so trouble follows us everywhere we go. And we're just beginning to get a bigger taste of it. And we could be in for a long journey with great difficulty. Well, since we know that we are designed to experience troubles, we must also know that God is aware and that he has the power and every resource we need to overcome our troubles. Now, the ordinary Christian life that was lived before this country was founded is not what you and I experience. Historically, America is a blip of uncommon comfort on the Christian history timeline, while nearly everything that came before us was filled with struggles and with heresies and martyrs who gave their lives as they stood for the truths of God's word. For the most part, though, we've been left alone. Never in my lifetime has there been a governmental or an ecclesiastical authority that said you must believe this doctrine, you must believe our teachings and you can't teach what you think the Bible says. And neither has there been an authority that said you can't teach the Bible at all. You can't have a Bible. You dare not assemble and preach from the Bible. We've never had that, but it is quickly becoming a reality. Now, as I said last week, I was talking to one of our members who said he's unable to say anything about God or the Bible or the church in the workplace. And if he does, that is considered hate speech for us to teach Romans chapter one in the streets. That would be considered hate speech or oh, we can riot if we want. We can burn down buildings and we can beat innocent people if we want. But we dare not preach from the Bible. Already we run the risk of having our videos yanked from social media platforms Because their algorithms are set to uh, detect speech that calls for homosexuality as a sin. that says that transvestism is abomination to God or that abortion is the murder of the innocent. Our sermons can be censored and yanked from social platforms because of it. This is terribly unusual for us. We're not used to this kind of scrutiny about what we would say in our churches. We're not used to thinking that we need to be prepared for any type of persecution. Another member recently wrote wrote to me and said that if this election goes the wrong way in November, that perhaps we need to be prepared to meet in secret. Now, we haven't seen this before, and I can tell you that the history of Christianity um, The way that it's been in every part of of the world since Christ founded the church is for the world to be against everything that we do. Now, I'm not a prophet. I can't give you an infallible sign from the Lord, but I can tell you that according to my knowledge of the Bible and together our knowledge of history, we shouldn't look at these times as being terribly unusual or impossible for us to get through and still maintain our sanity and our joy In the Lord, Well, how do I know this? Well, as I said, we have knowledge of scripture. It's already written in God's word what we are to expect and how we are to handle it. And the scriptures are clear that Christians are involved in a great battle, that we are engaged in a cosmic conflict that has been raging since before Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. In fact, the fall of man is one of the results of this ongoing conflict. In these next verses, I uh, next few weeks, rather, I thought that it would be helpful for us to study the scriptures about Christian warfare. Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I mean, there is no peace between him and the world system, and there will be no peace between his people and the world. Though we use this term warfare that may seem a bit harsh when Applied to Christianity, although we did read in the scripture, uh, the congregational, or rather the uh, the uh, call to worship this morning in Exodus 15, where it says the Lord is a God of war. Well, that that concept of warfare is most biblical in second Corinthians 10 verses three and four. And in first Timothy one, verse eight, Paul wrote, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. First Timothy 1:18. this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. There are numerous references to fighting and to warfare, and Paul continued this warfare motif in the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy when he wrote, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Christians in the past who lived in persecution went to the word of God to find their strength and to fight the daily battles of the faith they encountered. William Gernall a Puritan from the 17th century wrote the definitive book on spiritual warfare. This was between the years of 1655 and 1662. And these were times when pastors were being thrown out of their pulpits by the English government. This was under the acts of uniformity. And Gurnall wrote three volumes entitled The Christian in Complete Armor. Now, I have that that book in my in one volume in in my library, and it's based on this text that we read a moment ago, Ephesians six, verses 10 through 20. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, leaned on Gurnall's book, and he said, besides the Bible, this is the book that he would choose if he had no others. Charles Spurgeon called it a wealth of wisdom And I pointed out because this concept of Christian warfare is not foreign to the Bible, it's not foreign to Christian experience, and you today, you who are members of Berean Baptist Church and our friends who believe in Jesus Christ, you are on the skirmish lines of this great battle, and it may be that you and I will be thrust into a defense of our faith and tested like we've never been tested before. And so if you're struggling with the small skirmishes that we see now, and if you're having difficulty in these days holding on and maintaining faith, then you'd better start bulking up on the word of God and setting your defenses in order in the power of the Holy Spirit, or you'll be sidelined as a wounded soldier who can't fight because of spiritual weakness. Now, today I want to talk to you about this conflict in these coming weeks. We'll discuss Different aspects of it. We'll talk about the enemy. We'll talk about our allies. We'll speak of the methods of attack and the weapons that we use to defend ourselves. And then finally, we'll discuss the victory that's won by our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, if you'll notice again, verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, this verse begins our study of Christian warfare. This is the verse that sets the tone. It tells us where to look and where to place our confidence for the battles that lie before us. Before we can talk about these battles and fighting them, we must forsake all confidence that we have in self and put all of our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. We go in the power of his might. But we don't want to forget that we must go. Paul doesn't say that God fights this battle alone. He is the strength and the power of it. But you can't sit down and say, God, go fight for me. God, God, go do this while I sit here on the couch and and watch TV. Paul said to Timothy, I charge you, Timothy, to fight the good warfare. I charge you to fight the fight of faith. And so we must fight. I remind you also of Joshua, the Lord, and his mighty angelic armies knocked down the walls of Jericho. But it wasn't until Joshua and the people followed orders to march around the city. And so you and I, as God's people, must gather on the battle line because we are involved in warfare. We're going to talk about this, and today we introduce the subject of Christian warfare, of Christian conflict. Now, first, I'd like to discuss with you the nature of the conflict. First, the nature of the conflict. Now, when the apostle raises the subject of warfare, he's not speaking of this conflict in the sense that he does in other places of scripture. In Romans, Paul spoke of an inner conflict that is the daily struggle for believers. There is a struggle. There is a conflict between our old nature. That is what we are by our natural birth and our new nature. What we are because of our new spiritual birth in Jesus Christ. Now, when we're saved, the old nature is still with us. This body of flesh that is the old sinful nature is not completely gone. And it won't be until this body goes into the grave and then raised a glorious body Made perfectly like Jesus Christ. Well, because of this, Paul wrote Romans 6 and 7. And he wrote about this ongoing struggle and ongoing conflict that we have to live in righteousness and holiness. There is a battle that is waged on the inside as we are being sanctified. And our old nature is the enemy within. But as Paul writes this chapter in Ephesians, he doesn't have in mind our inner conflicts. His message is to the church body, to Christians that are battling forces that are outside of us. Some of these forces we can see because they sit in the halls of government. Some of them are burning Bibles and protesting in the streets. But these enemies that we can see are not the true instigators. Gavin Newsom is the least of our concerns. See, the real power behind him and these others are the unseen forces and these unseen forces constantly war against the church. These unseen forces oppress us from without. And then eventually they push down and they do oppress us internally and they ruin our confidence in our salvation. Well, I don't want to get way ahead of myself, but part of this conflict, this warfare is against your assurance that you are a child of God. And it's warfare against the church that is the pillar and the ground of the truth, the means of proclaiming the gospel to the world. There is an enemy that we fight, and it's a real unseen enemy consisting of Satan and his demons. Let me point out some important factors concerning this conflict. The first is that it's more than physical. Now, I'm not saying that the conflict can't affect you physically because it can. I'm saying that the enemy is not physical. The results of his activity can leave sickness in its wake. It can leave mental confusion and despondency. But he doesn't use physical weapons against us any more than we can use physical weapons against him. Now, in verse 12, the apostle says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And sometimes I wish that it was that easy because perhaps we could devise a physical weapon that would kill demons and leave them strewn in the parking lot. And then we would just take our cars and run over them. But because this enemy is unseen, many don't believe there's even a battle to fight. Or at least Christians don't need to be involved in it because we can just sit back and let God do this for us. And perhaps you've heard people say, let go and let God. And they think, well, that is a profound saying because it shows complete dependence on God. And yet the scriptures never teach that our method of sanctification and our ability to defeat Satan is a battle that we don't personally fight. We've seen that Paul never taught Timothy such nonsense It was never for him to let go and let God. That was never part of any battle plan in the Old Testament. And if that's what you think, if you think that's all you need to do or you don't need to do anything, then you're doomed to defeat. The devil likes nothing better than for you to think he poses no threat. He is content to let you sit back and think that he's a fairy tale and a figment of the imagination. And indeed, there are people that. Teach and preach that evil is an influence, that it exists as a state of the mind, and there aren't any intelligent forces behind it. And so they say that evil doesn't come from the spiritual world. Evil is a state of the mind. It belongs to the physical and the mental being of man. And the way to get rid of it is to make lifestyle changes and just try to do better. The way to get rid of evil is to educate people, to improve their lifestyles. Apply, perhaps some Christian principles, put a little Christian salve on top of it, and then everything will be all right. Well, because this is not a physical conflict, it doesn't have a physical solution. And its solution is certainly not what many Christian conservatives think. Now, I've had much to say on this subject. I think it's appropriate to mention it again. The government will not solve this problem. And Christian churches and pastors need to stop their politics and get on with the gospel. So the unseen world of evil is bigger and more powerful than any government. And whether we like it or not, the Bible has no prophecy of the end times that recognizes the existence of America. What does that mean? Well, it means that America is just another of the nations that will join the Antichrist, if America even exists, when he appears. Seventeen hundred years ago... The Roman Empire tried to change things by becoming Christian. Constantine was misguided by the same evil forces that we mentioned, and he thought that he could conquer the world and save his crumbling empire by embracing false Christianity. His satanic misconception led to the worst persecution of Christians that the world has ever known. There was a false church that arose and it tried to eradicate true churches by force. Under the guise of Christian warfare, and this was an attempt to turn spiritual warfare into physical warfare. I mean, today you see people pulling down statues of Roman priests who were part of the mission system in California in the 18th century because they forced Native Americans into submission. Now, we are not fighting physical warfare. We've got to get into the spiritual and God must change hearts for us to change the world. So let's stop thinking about the physical things that we can implement, and thereby we could solve all the world's problems. Now, what lies behind all the problems is not the enmity that exists between people groups. The problem is because of the dark, unseen spiritual world that is ruled by the devil and his angels and is against every people group and accentuates the prejudices of man to man. And more importantly, the enmity between God and man Now, the Bible doesn't say that we fight against physical forces. It's not against flesh and blood, but it says against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. All of those speak of these unseen powers of evil. And so Paul states it repeatedly against, against, against. Because he wants us to be sure to get this, that the problem is not primarily man to man. The problem is man against the devil. Now, before we move on to the second part of the sermon, I I want to make one more statement about the nature of this battle. Secondly, our nature, our nature ensures the conflict. Let's back up to the thought of how many people believe The way to cure all ills is to make people aware of the evil nature of things. Let them know about bad consequences for doing bad things, and then people will stop doing bad things. Then, on the other hand, if you tell people about good things and good consequences for good things, then they'll always choose to do good things. Psychiatrists and psychologists, legislators and judges, preachers and politicians... Those who think like this are totally ignorant of human nature. They're ignorant of what the Bible says about our human nature. And if this was true, we wouldn't be, be be building more prisons or thinking about releasing prisoners because there's overcrowding. Many people don't get this. Prisons are for punishing people for doing bad things. The primary purpose of prisons is not rehabilitation. Prisons are to punish people for doing bad things, and we have many prisons and we have overcrowding because people continue to do bad things. And so today the solution to the overcrowding of prisons is to decriminalize bad things. And we have psychiatrists in prisons that are trying to figure out why people do bad things. Parents send their little children to child psychologists to figure out why do our children do bad things? Well, maybe they just didn't get the memo from God. The human nature is corrupt. The heart is deceitful above all things. Now, maybe we could excuse psychiatrists and psychologists and the legislators and the judges and the politicians. They may not know this because they don't claim to get their information from God. But you know who we can't excuse? We can't excuse preachers. Preachers are supposed to know better. But you know what? Preachers have got it wrong, too, because we have many Baptist pastors that teach their people against total depravity and total inability. And preachers tell us that man is not helpless, that he is not depraved in all his faculties. And they say that the fall of man in that fall, that that man was not radically altered so that his will is affected. And they say that people retain the power to turn to God in salvation as they please. Well, the Apostle Paul taught no such thing. He says in Philippians 2, 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In the New Testament, the most quoted psalm is Psalm 110. The psalmist wrote, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy Power, there's not a word of truth that any person has the ability to turn to Christ and to receive him as savior without a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit and regeneration of his heart so that it's stubborn will is enabled to turn to God in repentance and faith. Now, let me describe the problem. Preachers who deny total ability, inability. Don't understand the enemy. They don't understand the power of the enemy and their helplessness because of the nature of fallen man. Now, if you understand how powerful the enemy is and what he can do, how would you ever think that a person of his own will could turn to God and put his faith in Christ? Now, we can go back to chapter two in Ephesians. And in the first verse, Paul said, and you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air that is Satan, of course, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. That is our way of life in times past in the lust of our flesh. And what did we do? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature. The children of wrath, even as others. You go on to the next verses and you'll find that we are alienated from God, that we are in darkness, that we have no hope, that we are strangers from the covenants of promise, that we are without God in the world. And then in chapter six, you learn exactly who we are struggling against. We fight against these principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world of spiritual wickedness in high places. And we have all of this that's going on. uh, It's going on against us. And on top of that, we have a nature that is bent on sin, a heart that is desperately wicked, a will that refuses God and a nature that is dead in sin. Jesus said the heart is defiled. Everything that comes from it is defiled. So how does saving faith come from a heart defiled in every faculty? And so are you telling me that people will turn to Christ because they have a preacher is smooth talking and convincing? Not on your life. There is no excuse for preachers not knowing this. Our nature ensures this conflict and we won't escape from under it unless God intervenes and makes a change that we can't make. Our human nature is bent on destruction and all of these things are nails and more nails in the coffin of a dead man, a man dead in sin. Now, of course, these scriptures are not describing the physical body. They describe the spiritual man who is dead to God in the spiritual world, and he's only alive in the kingdom in which he lives. And that is Satan's domain. Why are we susceptible to wars and crime and evil in this world? It's because of this nature. We're like an iceberg. Oh, we might look good on the surface. It's pretty to look at on the surface. But underneath lies the mass of the Berg that sinks the Titanic. There is a conflict and we can't win because our nature will not let us win. Instead of quenching the fires of hell, we add more fuel to it. Now, the scripture says The God of this world, Satan, has blinded our eyes, lest we should believe the glorious gospel and be saved. Our nature acquiesces to every whim of Satan, and yet preachers still tell us we have the power to believe. What Bible are they reading? We have an enemy that's stronger, stronger than we can imagine, and only by God's power will we be able to stand in the conflict. So the nature of our battle, it's not physical and it doesn't have a physical solution. Now, I want to go on to the second part of the message next week. We'll talk about the enemy in this conflict, which we've already said it's Satan and his demons. Uh, But today I'd like to introduce next week's message with just an overview. Now, secondly, is the stature of our enemy First is the nature of the conflict and now the stature of our enemy. Our enemy is real. Now the devil is a phony, but there isn't anything phony about the devil. He's real and there's nothing that he likes better than for you to think that he's not. The devil loves the little caricatures that we have of him. He likes the picture of a little man in red underwear with horns on his head and a long tail and carrying a pitchfork. The devil likes it when you think that the difference between good and evil is a little angel that that's on this shoulder whispering into your ear to do the right thing. And then there's a little red devil on this shoulder whispering in your ear to do the wrong thing. The devil likes that because it's not serious. And if your impression of him is wrong, then you won't guard yourself against him. Also, they say the devil is folklore. The devil is a cartoon character. And if you talk seriously about him, people think you're crazy. They think you're lost in some sort of medieval fantasy. Dungeons and dragons is what they think. Grimm's fairy tales, Aesop's fables. Well, I want to make a statement that may shock some of you. You're used to hearing me say that to be saved, you must believe in Jesus Christ. Well, I want to tell you something else to be saved. You must also believe in the devil. Now, not that you have faith in the devil or that you have confidence in him, but that you believe that the devil truly does exist. Well, why must you believe there is a devil? Well, you must believe because of the authority of Scripture. Now, you might not understand everything that we say about the devil, but you can't deny his existence and power without denying Christ. Why is that true? Well, it's because of the authority of the words of Jesus. Jesus said... John 6:63 6, It is the spirit that quickeneth; the flesh profiteth nothing: the words the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He also said in John 5:39 Search the scriptures; for in them ye think ye have eternal life; and they are they which testify of me. Jesus taught much about Satan, he attributed the unbelief of the Jews to their father, the devil. He spoke of Satan as a deceiver. And he even said this in Luke ten eighteen: I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And there's no doubt that Jesus taught Satan is real. So if you disbelieve Jesus about Satan, then you can't believe anything else he says. Now, here's what the Bible says about disputing the word of God. John writes about this in 1st John 1. He says that if we say we have not sinned and God says that we have sinned, we make him a liar. And what happens when you make God a liar? Well, he explains in the 10th verse of 1st John 1. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, follow me on this. If we make God a liar... His word is not in us. And what does the Bible say about the word of God? Interestingly, Jesus said something about it in his reply to Satan when he was tempted. When Satan tempted him, Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So how will you live? That is, how will you be saved? How will you go to heaven? By the word of God. How are we saved? By the Word of God. So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so if Jesus says the devil is real and you say he's not, then you disbelieve the Son of God. You make him a liar. And if you believe that Jesus is a liar, he can't be the Savior. If you dispute his words, you dispute the words by which you are saved. So I don't need extended arguments about the reality of Satan. I only need to go to one place. I go to the words of Jesus. Satan is not a fairy tale. He is real. Well, let me point out four aspects of this real spiritual enemy that you must be aware of. Now, first, at the top of our list, we would say that he's powerful. Paul writes this in Second Corinthians four, verse four. He says, in whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan is called a God. Now, he is not the God, not God with a big G. He's God with a little G. Paul refers to him as the God of this world. And that is an indication of his power. Now, the audience that Paul addressed in Corinth had a background in mythology. They understood what he meant by a God. Now, he's not Satan is not a mythological God, but they did believe something about the power of the gods. Jesus referred to Satan's power in a parable in Luke 11. He referred to him as the strong man armed. Jesus cast out devils and referred to himself as being stronger. But the devil is strong as well. And it's not even helpful to say that he's stronger than us. He is so much stronger than us that we can't even get the right comparison by saying he's stronger than us. He is so strong that only almighty God can deal with him. Next, he has a mission. Satan has a mission, and his mission is to destroy everything that God builds. When God created man to glorify him, the devil immediately got to work trying to destroy man. Now, Satan tries to take every person to hell, but he can't take every person to hell because God has his people and his people will come to him in the day of his power. And so when God saves these, Satan goes to work to destroy the influence they have on others. And this is the reason for this conflict we're discussing. Satan is busy with his mission and he's better than he should be at accomplishing his mission. The devil is good at it. Because there are so many Christians who have no testimony for Christ, or well, if they wanted to speak to family and friends or co-workers about matters of faith, they can't because they don't have a life to back it up. What Satan can't destroy, he renders ineffective. And so in short, there's this constant turmoil and conflict because Satan never stops. He's always on his anti-God mission and his anti-God mission is an attempt to be God. In 2 Thessalonians, it's described how Satan will try to sit on God's throne through the embodiment of the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin, that is the Antichrist, be revealed the son of perdition. Verse four, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is Satan's mission. He works day and night on this mission. He wants to be God. But thank God his mission will ultimately fail. Now, thirdly, he has a method. Satan has a method and his method is subtlety and deception. No one enters a league with the devil without first being deceived. Eve partook of the forbidden fruit because of deception. Now, when the devil makes you think that you can gain an advantage because of sin and whether that's monetary or personal happiness or success, it doesn't matter. It's all deception. He is the father of lies and lies are deception. And Satan is so good at deception that the Bible gives us an incident that will happen that will prove just how crafty he is. And this happens after the millennial reign of Christ. This is after Christ rules the world for one thousand years in perfect peace. It's after crime is stamped out because Christ rules in righteousness. It's after economic prosperity and a perfect government. What does the Bible say will happen? It says that Satan is set free from his prison and he is so good with his methods that he deceives the nations once again and assembles them for one final conflict with the God of heaven. Well, let's finish with this. Fourthly, he has a kingdom. Satan is the arch counterfeiter, so he acts like a king. What does a king have? Well. King is not a king without a kingdom. Satan has his. He counterfeits God. God has his kingdom and Satan wants to be God. So he has his kingdom. Jesus said Satan has a kingdom in Luke 11. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against itself. That house falls. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom Stand. Jesus said, Satan has a kingdom. And what do you find in a kingdom? A kingdom has subjects. It has workers. It has servants. It has ambassadors. It has emissaries. And then what does Paul say in our text? Verse 12, Ephesians 6, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. These are Satan's helpers. This is an enemy of great stature. He rules a kingdom with plenty of help. The conflict that we are in is a mighty conflict and we can't win unless God is on our side. The good news is that God promised he would never leave us or forsake us. And so when you're disturbed and you're wondering, where is God? What am I supposed to do now? Well, the answer to that question is fight the answer is to be strong in the power of God and in his might and to put on the armor that God provides. You can't avoid the conflict. You can't do it because God designed you to be in the middle of this conflict. You are a warrior in Christian warfare. And so today, members of Berean, save friends. You are in a spiritual fight and we can win this fight because the one who is with us is greater than all enemies. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we ought not to be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by the troubles and trials that we see. Look up. We are to look to Jesus, who is the author. And what does the Bible say? He is the author and the finisher of our faith. God will perform and he will keep us unto the last day. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy 316, it says, be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. We're in a fight. This is a great battle. It's a great war. And only by the help of almighty God will we win. And that help is available to every believer in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now asking for strength. We ask for courage in the battle that we fight every day against Satan. As your word says, we are designed for it. Uh, it's inevitable. Every Christian and every Age in every century has gone through this at some time or another. Uh, And if we're aware of our surroundings, as we should be, we would see that the fight is everywhere around us. The host of the enemy is everywhere. But thank God we have a defense against all of that. And we find it here in Ephesians chapter six. And Paul writes this not to just tell us how great the enemy is. And for us to be fearful of him, but rather to let us know that we have everything at our disposal to fight him, to keep him away and for us to be sanctified and to be holy, righteous in your sight and to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we see the battle developing around us. Uh, We're in a time that's unprecedented for most of us here. I think for all of us here that. Have been born in this country and we haven't seen when we couldn't go to church for weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, although the government may not be the ones that has caused this, yet it's possible for the devil to use our government to uh, accentuate the problem. And we just ask, Lord, that you would give us relief from it. We pray that we could get back into church, we pray that you would control, control viruses and then. Also, that you would control our government. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you do for us. And we understand that there are people now uh, today that are suffering in so many ways uh, in our in our county, and our area. Here we see the wildfires have started again. And we just went through this not that long ago. And it seems like it comes around uh, too often. Lord, we know that you control all of this. And we ask for the. Power and the ability and the strength to get through it. We pray for everyone who's affected by it, that you would bless in their lives. And most of all, Lord, we pray that as as troubles are heaped upon us, uh, having a a virus and and having um, the government keep us out of church and then having wildfires on top of this and then having economic problems that are the results of everything that's going on. Lord, we can get so distressed that we think we just can't get through Lord, we need to know that you are capable of handling all of this. And Lord, we pray that our dependence would be upon you and you always and only on you. Bless us this day, Lord. We pray for those who don't know Christ as Savior. We pray that we've said something today that will be helpful, that they'll understand that their human nature will never enable them to come to you, that they need the power of the Holy Spirit. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need the light of To shine into their heart. And the only one who can do that is for the Holy Spirit to block Satan and keep him away from us. So that light will shine in. Help us, Lord, today. Bless our people. Bring us back together soon. And we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now I'd like to give you a final word of benediction for today. This comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel, Samuel, chapter two, in verse number seven, it says the Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints And the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Everywhere we read in the word of God, we find the power of God. We find the help of God for everything that we go through. He will not allow us to be defeated. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.